Hello and welcome to JPD Weekly. We have something a little different for you today. Now, as many of you know, a while ago, our main Daily Renegade YouTube channel was deleted and many of the interviews we had on there were not backed up. That's actually what led to the creation of uh, Daily Renegade in the first place because that wasn't the first time that that had happened. This has actually happened a couple of times. Uh, well, as it turns out, I was actually able to find a couple of those uh, interviews. So today I uh, wanted to do something a little, little special, a little different, and I wanted to air my interview with Michael Knowles from uh, The Daily Wire, where we talk about the importance of free speech. Enjoy. Michael Knowles hosts The Michael Knowles Show on The Daily Wire. Make sure you check it out. It's funny, witty, informative, and believe it or not, in our political climate, it's actually positive. Uh, he's, also an, <laughs> he's also an actor, author, conservative, uh, political commentator, and columnist. He wrote what is probably the most in-depth and well-researched book I've ever read in my life, and I would even count my own in, the, in there, uh, Reasons to Vote Democrats, uh, A Comprehensive Guide. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Knowles to to Josh Peck Disclosure. Michael, how you doing? Josh, I'm doing very well, and I can tell that you're a real scholar for having read my book. That's, I'm really <laughs> pleased to hear that. Well, I'll tell you what, it's only 266 pages, but it's a very deep 266 mm -hmm. pages. It took me eight years to complete, so six years longer than the book has even been out. That, that's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it took, it took me well over... 20 years to research it, but I hope that uh, all of that information is digestible, edifying for people who want to find out all of the reasons to vote for Democrats. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. People should definitely check that out, and people should also read the Amazon reviews if they don't believe us on how amazing of a book it is. <laughs> oh, yes, there are 3,000 very insightful conservatives have uh, given their, their thoughts on, on the most important political magnum opus of our generation. I love it. <laughs> And who, who's, who said conservatives don't have a sense of humor? That's right. <laughs> so I want to start out, people in our culture, uh, even many of those on the conservative side, you know, speaking of uh, having a sense of humor and stuff, it seems a lot of people uh, generally kind of overall seem to have an overall dismal outlook on our current time. Yet on your show, you always project a really positive outlook, which uh, my, my wife and I and even our kids uh, thoroughly enjoy. Well, why are you so optimistic and why don't you just fall in line with everyone else and allow depression and anxiety to consume you until you're nothing but a dry, withered husk of your former youthful <laughs> self? <laughs> That's right. It's like the line, my priest uh, told me the line about uh, the Scottish optimist and the Scottish pessimist. You know, the Scottish pessimist says things couldn't get any worse, and the Scottish optimist says, oh, yes, they can. <laughs> that is what it seems like among conservatives sometimes. But uh, there are a few reasons. One, Winston Churchill observed, for myself, I'm an optimist. It doesn't make a lot of sense to be anything else. Uh, that's part of it. But I don't think it's just a sort of shallow or blind optimism. When you look around for the first time in a long time, things are going well. They're not just going a little well. They're going very well. As a matter of... Uh, politics, you know, the economy is booming, joblessness is at an all-time low, employment is at an all-time high, uh, you've got uh, uh, trade deals that are being reworked that hasn't caused a trade war, that hasn't caused global recession, things actually seem to be doing a bit better. The 
IMF credits the Trump administration for the boost in the global economy. On foreign affairs, we have relative peace abroad. We have uh, potentially denuclearizing of North Korea, potentially denuclearizing of Iran. That would be quite good. Uh, on matters of sort of international silliness, you know, President Trump left the Paris Accord and we were told the sky would fall. Uh, last time I checked, the sky is doing just fine. <laughs> and uh, on the cultural level, what's so important because, look, as a matter of domestic politics, the government is being deregulated. That's a very good thing. Uh, all of a sudden, the left is discovering the wonders of local government. They're saying, oh, perhaps we shouldn't give all of this power to the federal government. That's very good. And on a cultural level, for the first time in my life and in the lifetime of most millennials I know, the conservatives are the ones having fun. The conservatives are the ones who have an exuberance. You, I mean, we cite the blank book, but what the blank book is indicative of it, are all of those uh, commenters and all of those reviewers who are having a little bit of fun finally. They're willing to shake out of their their doer uh, sensibilities and they're saying, oh, th things are quite nice. They can breathe. All of the late night comedians are crying on television. There, There is a comedy special, so-called comedy special on Netflix called <laughs> Nanette. That's, it's this anti-comedy comedy. It's just a woman complaining for an hour about how how difficult her life is. Yeah, that's a ha ha ha, not, not a lot of comedy. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the right, you know, people are having a good time because there's, there's a little light. You know, uh, it was Horace Walpole, I think, uh, the English writer who said that life is a comedy to the man who thinks and a tragedy to the man who feels. This seems to tie in nicely to Ben Shapiro's line about how facts don't care about your feelings. When you're in this tyranny of subjectivism, this tyranny of emotions, like you're seeing on the left, everything is so sad and upsetting and terrible. But when you just think, you, you look around, you have a little historical perspective, and you can see into the near future just a little bit, perhaps, things are going relatively very very, very well for us. I see no reason to frown. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it's it's a time like no other that I can remember in my lifetime, which isn't very long. I'm only 34. Uh, but but still, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to be able to be happy and excited about politics. Whereas for me personally, be before Trump, I really didn't have much of an interest in politics. But uh, Trump kind of cured that for me. And now I'm all in. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, one, one other aspect of Trump, because he jokes around, even just that, it breaks some of that tyranny of self-seriousness where they say, oh, you can't say that. You should. Oh, no, you're really this. Or then you, you're so nervous to say any word. I talked to my friends on the left. I had a lefty comedian come in and he, he's coming out of this a little bit, but he would preface everything that he said with 17 apologies. And I'd say, you don't have to apologize. This is a safe space. There, there's free air here. The, the other thing that President Trump has done that's pretty nice is that he has broken this ideological rigidity that I think had settled in even on the right. Uh, it, it had always settled in on the left, but on the right, we had gotten to be a little bit of a checklist sort of people. And ideology is always wrong. Mm -hmm. Ideology is the sort of thing you write down on a piece of paper and you say, the entire world, the whole universe, my experience of reality is on this piece of paper paper and everything else isn't true. And when people get ideological, they uh, lose their sense of the world. When things don't comport with their ideological predictions, they go a little crazy. But I think one nice aspect of the Trump era is, hey guys, uh, stop worrying about if something works in theory, if it works in practice. There is a practical knowledge to life that really matters. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing the fruits of that. 
Yeah, it, it reminds me of what you said today on your uh, on your show. It was either today or yesterday. I believe it was today about how uh, it, it, Trump's really genuine because he doesn't fit into any one of these ideologies. He's kind of a little bit of, of everything, but that makes him genuine. And he doesn't speak precisely. It, you, you know, I mean, he, he's not exact about his language, but that also adds uh, a lot of uh, a lot of genuineness to him. I, and, and speaking of language, you recently did a PragerU video on the importance of language. Do you see a difference of a approach to language between the political right and left? And if so, why do you think those differences arise? Well, that is certainly the case. Uh, the left uses a lot of jargon and language that people in reality don't recognize. You hear them all the time. You hear these little tells when Cory Booker speaks or somebody. <laughs> they, they talk about the folks, and they talk about being an ally, and they talk about intersectionality and social justice and uh, you know, they don't say illegal alien, they say undocumented future American dreaming superstar, well, I don't know, whatever language they use. And it's increasingly disconnected from reality. And this gets to ideology as well, which is that ideology in so many ways is just like a bag of vocabulary. You know the ideology by the words that people use. When you hear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the socialist star of the Democrats, when you hear her talking about late-stage capitalism and class conflict, you know that she's coming to politics from a Marxist ideological perspective. You don't hear that on the right. Now, for a long time, I think the right has allowed ourselves to get trapped in the left's language. But once you use their language, you give up the whole game. And another great aspect of the Trump era, I remember this well from the, the 2016 campaign. Some, he was using the word anchor babies, you know, when someone comes to America just to have a kid and then the kid gets birthright citizenship. And uh, some journalists, by, by journalist I mean Democrat operative masquerading <laughs> as a journalist, right. some journalists said, don't you know Mr. Trump, that the word anchor baby is very offensive. And Trump said, well, uh, how is it offensive? What word should I use? And the guy said, you know, you've got to use the phrase uh, undocumented future or dreaming, whatever. And Trump stares at him while he gets out this 20-second phrase. And then Trump looks at him and he says, I think I'm going to stick with anchor baby. I think that's going to work just fine. That, that freedom to say, no, we're not going to use your ridiculous, manipulative language. We're going to speak freely. I mean, I, I think it really came to a head with the gender pronoun battles. Yeah. Because the left is there's now so divorced from reality. They are forcing us. In certain countries, at the, at the foot of a gun, uh, they're saying, you need to call men women. Mm -hmm. And you have to call women men. And if you don't do it, we're going to punish you for that. And I think that was a bridge too far. I think some people just said, no, I don't tell me to disbelieve my lying eyes. I can see in front of me that person is a man. And uh, that very basic thing, I think, has led to a lot of uh, great advancement in uh, in political language. We're finally free of some of those shackles. Yeah, I, I, and I agree, and it shows a lot of the hypocrisy too. Because if they're so strong and empowered and everything, like they like they shout at the rest of us, why is something as as simple as a, a pronoun enough to crumble their entire existence? Literally, as they say it, you know, you're stealing my existence, my hu my humanity away. And that's not what it is at all, of course. Uh, now, well, it's you, funny you. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. It's funny that you bring up that example because they use this phrase. You, you, you might not hear it if you're in the mainstream of the culture, but you hear it on the fringes, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, on all of the college campuses. The phrase that they will use uh, on, on the left to refer to conservatives, they'll say, for instance, if you disagree with a conservative, 
what have you done? You've just disagreed with him. You've said, okay, I, I don't agree with your opinion. And the conservative says, okay, well, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you disagree with a lefty, the phrase that you increasingly hear is, you're erasing me. Yeah. This is erasure. You're erasing my lived identity. Because for them, the, the essence of not only political identity, but personal identity, because to the left, the personal is the political. The, the, the essence is this ideology. When you disagree with that opinion, you, you have rejected them personally. And that's, that's a ridiculous point of view. And we should obviously laugh at it. I think it would be better, <laughs> certainly for society, but it would be better for them. They'd be less angry and maddened all the time. Yeah, and maybe they'd actually be able to grow and learn some, learn some new things, as we all should be doing. Right. Uh, now, and I, I think this, this might be um, uh, contributing to the destruction of the leftist culture. I mean, right now, right now the, you know, the lefties kind of own the country, uh, culture, but do you think that conservatives are going to win the culture back? And if so, what would that look like? Well, I don't know. I, in the long run, we're all dead, to quote John Maynard <laughs> right. Keynes. And uh, when you look broadly at the, the modern era from, say, the Protestant Revolution to the present, I don't know that on the long run we're going to recover the culture into any uh, serious moral or, or political sense. Mm -hmm. But there can be good blips. There can be good little bits of recovery. And we're seeing that now. We are seeing at least the pendulum s swing back a little. You see it with Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Right. Where, You'll, you know, uh, Christmas, the, the Christmas is the holiday that must not be named. And the, the left always denies this. They say there's no war on Christmas. You crazy conservatives think there's a war on Christmas. And you say, okay, well, if there's no war on Christmas, then just say Merry Christmas. They say, no, we have to say Happy Holidays. <laughs> so well, what, what, what are the other holidays that are going on? They say, well, uh, what about Hanukkah? You say, well, Hanukkah was a month ago. So, okay, well, what about... Uh, Kwanzaa. Nobody celebrates Kwanzaa. Well, uh, what about the winter solstice? Do, do you celebrate the winter solstice? No, it's because they don't want to use that phrase because the left is essentially opposed to the very civilization that created it, Western civilization. And that's what it is. When you, I think when you, uh, it, when you have a culture that kind of breaks free of those shackles, then as you've been seeing for the last year or so, people are more willing to say Merry Christmas. They're more willing to use the word illegal alien rather than these silly euphemisms. They're willing to use precise language. And one way that conservatives can win back the culture is by using precise language. Don't give them their these little inches, because when you lose language, you use, lose entire premises. This was uh, the, the question of gay marriage. Right. This is where this came up most clearly. Uh, so, you know, some conservatives say, oh, oh, it's fine, who cares? We can redefine marriage, it doesn't matter. And that's a fair argument for them to have, I suppose. But what the left did is they changed, the, using language, they changed that debate. The debate was whether we should redefine marriage to include monogamous same-sex unions. For some reason, not polygamous same-sex unions, but just specifically monogamous same-sex unions. Can, should we redefine marriage that way? Does sexual difference have something to do with marriage? Do men and women have something to do with marriage? And they subverted that entirely by saying... Do you have the right, do, do gay people have the right to marriage, presupposing that marriage already included monogamous same-sex unions? Right. And once, it, once it's a question of rights, yeah, of course, everybody should have equal <laughs> rights. But, but that was never the debate. They just tricked us with language. Yeah, and we see we see that a lot too. But I think in in the Trump era, uh, more people on the right, instead of feeling bad about it or feeling guilty or feel, feeling like they've done something wrong or offended somebody, I, I, I think conservatives more now, especially younger millennial ones like like you and I, are, are starting to kind of wake up and realize, you, you know what, 
that really doesn't matter because this is the truth and whatever you want to, you know, whatever fantasy you want to play in is, is just not going to hold water there. Uh, now, what would, what do you think, I don't even know if this is possible at this point, to have a functioning culture where both the left and the right uh, could so- somehow co- coexist a- a- and have productive conversations and things like that. I mean, obviously we're coexisting now. We're not, at least not yet, blowing each other up or anything like that. But what what would the left have to do to maintain their hold on the culture in a way that the 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 right could um, uh, could go along with to, to at, at least in some sense? Well, we are certainly coexisting. There's no civil war yet, right. and I, this is probably smart of the left because. Uh, the right has all the guns, so it would, would probably not behoove them to start a civil war anytime right. <laughs> soon. Uh, but uh, the the real breakdown is this breakdown of language. If you want to be able to communicate, then you have to agree on objective definitions of words. If we don't have objective definitions of words, then you're just a bunch of screaming animals, aren't you? You're just grunting. And politics ceases to be a discourse and a debate over uh, different areas and over different generations, and it becomes a brute force battle of individual interests that can never coincide. Uh, this is what the left is descending into. There was a video of uh, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens from TPUSA. They were at some event, and there were uh, protesters just shrieking in their face. Not really shrieking words, just shrieking sounds. Yeah. And that's a great uh, metaphor for what has happened broadly in the culture. We're not uh, using the same language. We're not uh, agreeing on terms. The left is the aggressor in that. Uh, it's because of a radical subjectivism. It's because they're saying, oh, no, words don't have meaning. It's just whatever we say things are, that's how we're going to get along in society. If, if we're going to use certain language and depict reality in a certain way, and then poof, magically, it's going to become that way. That isn't going to happen. There's certainly not going to be any way for the left and the right to coexist if we're just forcing one another to believe each other's ridiculous fantasy of reality. But what we have to do, rather, is agree on aspects of reality. And right now, the, the conservative, and I think for a very long time, conservatives have a, a better hold on that. And the left is truly out there in la la land. It's, it's up to them. We, you know, uh, it would be very nice to say, oh, you guys come this, mu- this far and we'll come this far. But you can't meet in the middle when it's a question of reality and fantasy. You really have to have the left come debate in good faith on honest terms about whether we want socialist health care or whether we want to redefine marriage or whether we want to raise taxes or whatever. If you're not debating those things in good faith, then we can't meet in the middle. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the language is so important that that event that you messaged uh, or that you uh, referenced, one of the one of the things that they were screaming was F white supremacy. But they white women mostly, but what white people were screaming that at a black woman. That's right. <laughs> I mean, talk about that's what hypocrisy. I mean, it's well, they're always. Yeah. The, yes, they are. They are always projecting. Yeah. They, you know, it's all of these white women. Sh- when they weren't just shrieking sounds, they said "f white supremacy," and they were yelling at Candace Owens, a black woman. And the the irony here is that they are the ones projecting a white supremacy. Mm-hmm. They're the ones saying, "You black woman have to think and behave and talk exactly like we tell you to." And if not, we're going to get in your face and we're going to physically intimidate you. They're always doing that. But you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You need a little bit of humility and a little bit of awe and reverence to have wisdom. And the left 
Trump's rejected all of that. The left hosts pride marches, not just gay pride, not just LGBT LMNOP pride, pride for every uh, aspect of their coalition. And, uh, you know, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you've got one side that is utterly without humility, then you're, you're never going to be able to, to communicate for one. And you're never going to be even self-aware to begin that conversation. Well, we have a lot more to get to, but first I have to tell you about Cornerstone Asset Metals. Concerning the economically unstable times that we live in, it is a great idea to convert some of your savings into real money. And there's a big difference between what we call real money, which is actually currency. Our dollar is currency, which fluctuates. Real money, like silver, is a store of value over time. So the best way to think of it is like this. If you had saved $1,000 in cash back in the late 1960s, that $1,000 would still be $1,000, but it would buy you significantly less today due to inflation. Now, if you had saved that same $1,000 uh, in silver rather than cash back in the 1960s, today it would be around $28,000. So one of the best ways to protect your purchasing power is in real money, more specifically silver. You can buy and have the metals shipped discreetly to your door, and what most people don't know is that you can actually convert your IRA or even a 401k into physical silver, rather than having all your life savings tied up in the paper fiat system, which is subject to uh, hyperinflation. Go to dailyrenegade.com and click on the Cornerstone Asset Metals banner and sign up to get your free silver report. One of the financial experts will speak with you to find out the best way to protect your savings going forward in these uncertain times. All right, Michael and I talk about much more, so you don't want to miss the rest of this episode, which you can get at dailyrenegade.com. Go ahead and either get a monthly or a yearly membership. I recommend the yearly because you save money in the long run. And you will find the rest of this episode plus so much more members-only content. Members, hang on the line. Everyone else viewing for free, thank you so much. And until next time, take care and God bless.